John the 13th chapter. Tonight I'm going to preach to you about foot washing. Foot washing. So if you'll look in verse 1. By the way, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, these five chapters in the Gospel of John that we're going to be preaching from all took place right before the day of His crucifixion. So if you can imagine five chapters of teaching from the Lord and the experience that He had leading up to His crucifixion. So this 13th chapter is the evening. And then as we go through up to the 17th or through the 17th chapter, it will bring us to the day of His crucifixion. So that lets you know what's happening here. Okay? So the evening and the night, right before His death, five chapters. Okay? Show you the significance of it. John chapter 13, verse 1, gives us the background of what Jesus is going to do here. Now, before the feast, say, before the feast of the Passover. Before the feast of the Passover. Get that? When Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world or out of the cosmos unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And suffer being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him. At this point, the devil has put in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Later we will see that the devil will enter into Judas Iscariot. But at this point, the devil has put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, Dost thou wash my feet? Or little he's saying, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not. And I want you to catch that. Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now. But thou shalt know hereafter. Do you see that? He's washing this, going to wash his feet. And he says, You don't know right now, what I'm doing. Now that's interesting to me because if somebody's washing your feet, you know what they're doing, right? That they're washing your feet. But Jesus says in verse 7, what I do doest, or what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. I want you to catch that because that's important. <clears throat> Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. He said, I don't wash you. You have no participation with me. You have no fellowship with me. 
Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only. I love his response. For him to think that he would not have part with Jesus was intolerable. And so he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you're clean, but not all. And I believe when he said that to Peter, he was very kind. He was very gentle with Peter, okay? So it wasn't a rebuke. He's responding to Peter, though, and telling him the necessity of being cleansed. Verse 10 again, Jesus said unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. <clears throat> so after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, notice now he takes his garments back up, and was set down. So now he sits down again. He said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. For I, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example <clears throat> that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I'm just going to read a couple more verses. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am king. Lord, we thank you right now for your presence. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church tonight. Lord, we ask you to cleanse us with your precious bloods of any defilement that we have received as we have walked into this world and been associated with the things of this world. We thank you that tonight that your word will cleanse us and be cleansed by this precious word, Lord. Let us be cleansed. And Lord, we ask you right now to forgive us of all our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> So as I said to you, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, five chapters deal with what Jesus said and what he did before his crucifixion the following day. The Bible gives us the background of the foot washing, so that's important for you to see. So the scripture tells us right here, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, what hour is that? The hour of his death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension. When he knew that his hour was come, now I want you to focus on something tonight, because a lot of times we focus on the events, Jesus dying on the cross, how he suffered in his body. We look at the physical aspects of Calvary, 
And a lot of times we lose sight of what was going on in the conscience of Jesus or in the mind of Jesus as he went through the crucifixion and as we move to the events that led up to the crucifixion. This chapter will begin to show us the consciousness of Jesus or what was going on in his mind as he faced this crucifixion the next day. So the Bible tells us here about what was going on in his mind. He said, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, he knew that he should depart out of this world. That word world is the cosmos. He's going to depart, but how is he going to depart? He's not very old. He's a young man. He's probably 33 and a half years old, somewhere, somewhere thereabouts. So how is Jesus at age 33 and a half thereabouts going to depart from this world? How is that going to happen? He knows how it's going to happen. It's going to happen by Christ's crucifixion. So the Bible tells us he knows in his mind, in his conscience, that he's going to depart out of this cosmos. And he's going to, the Bible says, unto the Father. Now that doesn't mean that the Father is separate from Jesus Christ. These verses at the very beginning are teaching you the relationship of the humanity of Jesus to his deity. They are not teaching you two separate persons. Okay? We don't have the Son separate from the Father thinking that he's going to the Father that's separate from him. He is the Father. He is God come in the flesh. But when we hear Jesus talking like this or thinking like this, it has to do with His humanity in relationship to His deity, not two separate persons. Did you get that? That's important. So the Bible says He's going to depart out of the world unto the Father. How? As a man. As a man, he's going to go back to the Father. The Bible says, having loved his own, say, loved his own. At this point, the focus is not a public ministry. At this point, his focus is to his disciples. His focus is time spent with his own, those that love him. In the time of his sorrow, he knows that he's fixing to die on that cross. He knows it's going to be a long, hard night. With that in mind, he gathers those that love him and those that he loves around him. He is away from the mobs. He's away from the crowds. He's away from the, all the noise and all the chaos. It's not a public ministry in focus here. It's his relationship with his own disciples in the time of his sorrow and in the time of his grief that he's spending this time with. The Bible says he knows what's going to happen. He's fixing to part out of the cosmos and of the Father. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them to the end. He loved them completely. He loved them to the ultimate possibility. He loved them to the end, even though they were in the world. That helps me tonight to know that even though I'm in the world tonight, He loves me. 
and that He loves me unto the end. He loves me completely. He loves me in a fulfillment type way. Even though I'm in this world. I'm not in heaven tonight. Spiritually I am, but physically I'm not. And I'm surrounded with all kinds of struggles and all kinds of temptations and all kinds of things just like you are. But the Lord Jesus Christ loves you in the world. While you're down here. While you're dealing with all the stuff and all the temptations and all the spiritual warfare and all the shortcomings and all the failures that you got, He still loves you in the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. What that means is we're in the cosmos. The cosmos means we're in a world that is alienated from God. The cosmos, the well-ordered, well-arranged creation, but that well-ordered, arranged creation, the cosmos, humanity is living alienated from God. And Jesus has come into this cosmos, into this well-arranged creation of His that is alienated from Him to reach those men and women in that creation and bring them to Himself and save them out of that world system. And so He says to his, about His disciples, He loves them in that cosmos. He's called them out of that world of mankind that is alienated from God. And it is His desire to reach every person in the cosmos that is alienated from God and to bring them into relationship with God. That's why He came. And the reason why you're in the church tonight is because at one time you were in the cosmos, that world system, and the spirit of the age was dominating and controlling your life. But because Jesus came into that cosmos to save mankind and to bring them back into a relationship with God, I am no longer in the, I'm not of the world, but I'm still in the cosmos. But I'm not of the cosmos. I'm not alienated anymore to God. And it's Jesus' desire to reach every man that's in the cosmos, that's living in that world, alienated from God, and bring them into the kingdom. And that's what He did for you, and that's what He did for me. He brought me out of that, that world system. And I was under the, under the control of the spirit of this age. I live the way of man alienated from God. The ways that the world lives, you know. Separate, apart from God, in opposition to God. That's the way every one of you were. <clears throat> and then God, by His grace, He saves you. And He brings you in the kingdom. And you're no longer alienated to God. And you're saved by His grace and you're saved by His mercy. And then all of a sudden you get full of self-righteousness. If it wasn't for God's grace and you're in my life reaching you when you were in that world system, you were at one time alienated from Christ as well. And it was because of His grace He reached into that cosmos to save you and to bring you into His kingdom and deliver you from the ways of the world. So now He loves you. Even though you're still in that cosmos. You're surrounded by a world alienated from God. Alienated from Jesus Christ. 
He still loves you because you're not of that cosmos. You're only in it. You're in the kingdom of God now. And I'm thankful that He doesn't stop loving me. When I'm making my way through this world, through the cosmos, and, I, and I'm struggling, and I'm having difficulties, and, and I'm not always successful in my walk with God, and sometimes I'm faltering, and oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. But God is grace. While I'm in that world, He's still loving me, and He loves you to the end. He loves you completely. He loves you perfectly. He can't love you any more than He loves you. And when you falter and you struggle in the cosmos, in the world, even though you're not of it, He still keeps loving you. And He loves His own, say His own, to the very end. So the Bible tells us He knows in His mind and His conscience that He's fixing to leave this cosmos, His creation. Mankind will no longer after He dies on that cross, when He rises from the dead, no sinner will ever touch Him. He is fully aware that He's going to die. That's the background about what He's going to do. But He's also fully aware that when He does die, it's not going to be in vain. And when He does die, He knows exactly where He's going. And He's going to be accepted by the eternal Spirit of God that is in Him. That His work will be accepted as a man. He will be received by the eternal spirit as a man. So he, he knows what's going to happen. Judas Iscariot will betray him. The devil will have his will against him. So Judas will will against Jesus and the devil will will against Jesus. But in Jesus' mind and his conscience, he knows that even though the devil's will is against him and Judas Iscariot, his will is against him. Ultimately, that the plan of God is going to be fulfilled. And he knows that God is in charge no matter what happens, no matter what the devil does and no matter what Judas Iscariot does he knows that God is in control. Do we have that kind of relationship with God that there might be some person willing against you or the devil of course willing against you but you know ultimately when you put your confidence and trust in God that God is in charge of everything that's going to happen in your life. When you are, and listen to this, when you are submitted to His will and you're walking by His Word and you're obedient and you're submitted to His will, it doesn't matter what the will of man is against you. It doesn't matter what the will of the devil is against you because ultimately God is in control. He's got a plan. So the background of the events here, Jesus in His mind, His conscience knows exactly what's going to happen the next day. And He knows that God is in control of everything and He knows that when He finishes the work and will of God, that God is going to receive Him as a man. So that's the background, His death. Say His death. And supper being ended, the devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him. See, Jesus knows this. He knows everything that's going on. And in this chapter, you're going to see the conflict of Jesus with the devil. And the conflict of the devil with Jesus Christ. There's going to be a battle at this table. And Jesus is very, aware, very well aware of this spiritual battle that is going to take place. 
He's very aware that Satan has put in the hearts, because we see it here, he knows. That Satan has put in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. What a time of his sin, when he's having sorrow and grief, and he knows what he's going to be facing the next day. He knows that his betrayer is sitting at the same table with him, eating with him. And not only that, but the Bible says in Luke 22 and 24, the Scripture tells us that His disciples, at that moment when He knows He's going to die, His disciples are fighting and fussing about who is the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Look there in Luke 22, please. <coughs> Appreciate you coming out tonight. I pray that I can say something to encourage you from the Word of God. Luke 22. Twenty-four, Luke 22, 24, the same time as John 13. There was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. He said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. So not only is the devil putting in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is aware of that. But he's got his disciples around the table and they're fussing and fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Isn't that sad? The time of his sorrow and the time of his grief, knowing what he's going to face the next day and all his disciples can do is fuss and fight and talk about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. All that's going on. There's great warfare here. He's sitting there right before the Passover and I, I am assuming that what is happening here is a Passover meal. Very unique though because the Bible says this happened before Passover. So evidently, as I, as I read, if I understand it correctly, that it's a Passover meal that's taking place here, but yet he will be able to be the Passover lamb that's slaughtered. So he is going to have a Passover meal before the Passover slaughter. Interesting. So Passover immediately takes you back to a natural time in the Old Testament. I don't want you to forget that. Okay? When the Passover lamb was slain in the Old Testament. So I am assuming, I believe by the context and by the rest of the Gospels that this is a Passover meal that he's celebrating with the disciples before he becomes the Passover lamb that will be slaughtered on the cross. With all that in mind, his sorrow, his pain, his grief, knowing that Satan has put in the heart of Judas to betray him, and then his disciples fussing and fighting about who is the greatest in the kingdom. This is all going on around him. But he still loves them. I said he still loves them. 
Because the Bible says, even in the midst of all that strife, and all that fussing, and all that fighting, about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, the Bible says He loved His own unto the end. They were in the world, they weren't of the world, but they were, you know, they weren't acting like they were supposed to be acting. But He loved them until the end completely. How many of y'all always act like you're supposed to? <clears throat> How many even made it through the day today without getting into some kind of strife and some kind of battle, warfare, struggle, argument? <clears throat> but Jesus still loved His own until the end. So you can imagine, I'm trying to show you what's going on in the mind of Jesus Christ. What's going on in His conscience? What's He thinking about as He's approaching His death the next day? What is the strife? What is the circumstance around the events before His death the next day? What is going on? That's what you need to see in the passage. You need to get the background. Because if you don't get it, you're not going to understand why Jesus did what He did here. And with Peter and the rest of the disciples striving about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, the Bible tells us, and with Jesus knowing that He's going to face death tomorrow, the Scripture says, and supper being ended, say supper being ended. And I believe that was the Passover supper. And His twelve disciples and possibly some of the women that followed Him are there in that upper room. Where is this Passover meal taking place? It's not taking place over near the temple. Is taking place in John Mark's mother's house, Mary, where the upper room was located. The Bible says Jesus had already told the disciples that there's going to be a person who's going to lead you to a large upper room. And that's where I'm going to eat the Passover with you. So they're not over there in the tavern, they're not near the tabernacle, the temple, I should say in connection to Passover, they're in a private place in a large upper room. John Mark. John Mark, the son of Mary, who's not even one of the disciples. He's probably a teenage boy. But he hears everything that's going on in that house, in that large upper room, as they celebrate the Passover. He hears it. The whole family. The, the place, John Mark's mother's house, Mary, the upper room. The Bible says the supper being ended, I believe this is Passover, it's over, which lets me know that Judas Iscariot, who was there, also ate the Passover supper. All twelve of the disciples are there, and as I said, probably some of the some of the women that followed him are in there. It doesn't tell us everybody that was there. The supper being ended, the devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. What are you talking about, Pastor? I'm telling you the fact that Judas Iscariot, who Jesus will call the devil, slept with Jesus or among his disciples. I've got to say that carefully in this age. <coughs> when Jesus laid down to sleep, Judas Iscariot and the rest of the disciples laid down to sleep. They ate with Jesus. They slept with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. Judas Iscariot, for approximately three years or so, walked as one of the disciples, and here's the miracle. 
The disciples that walked with Jesus, when they looked at Judas Iscariot, had no idea that Judas Iscariot was an imposter. Can you imagine that? See, that's why you have to be careful about who you connect yourself with. Because those disciples did not know that Judas Iscariot was a betrayer. They didn't know he was a thief. They didn't know he was robbing from the bag. They didn't know Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. Can you imagine? And when the rest of those disciples, the other eleven, looked at Judas Iscariot, he looked like a true disciple to them. But Jesus knew what kind of man he was. Help me Jesus to preach tonight. You can look at somebody in the church. It doesn't have to be just in this church. It can be anywhere. And they can claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It can be a husband. It can be a wife that claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you better be careful. Because if you get connected to them, you may be leading against the devil. You may be leaning on the devil tonight and not even know it. It was a miracle that Judas Iscariot could walk among the disciples, hear Jesus teach, sleep with them, eat with them, and the church thought he was a true disciple, but he was going to be the one that would be the devil. That's a miracle. But nobody picked it up. Nobody knew that Judas Iscariot was the one that would betray Jesus Christ. Except Jesus Himself. The rest of the disciples didn't discern that Judas Iscariot was going to betray Jesus. None of them discerned that he was being under the influence of the devil. None of them discerned it. Only Jesus knew it. So you and I have to be careful about putting our eyes on men. You better get your eyes off of a man. You better get your eyes off of men. Because when you look at a man, you think, wow, he's a true apostle. He's a true disciple. He might be a Judas Iscariot. She might be a Judas Iscariot. So if you keep your eyes on man, man will fail you. And I listen to me, God never failed me. I told my children and my wife, we were there in, in camping there, and I we had devotion to talking about the word of God. I told them, I said, let me tell you something. God has never one time failed us. It's impossible for God to fail you. God cannot fail you. Jesus cannot fail you. It is impossible for him to fail any of you. But when people fail you, that's when you can get discouraged. When, because it's people that are going to let you down. So you got to get your eyes off of people and get your eyes on Jesus. Because the one you're leaning on might be the devil. It was a miracle that Judas Iscariot could walk with him and eat with him and sleep with him. And the disciples never even discerned 
that he was of the devil. That's a miracle. And only Jesus knew that he was the devil. Eventually, he was going to be the devil. But yet Jesus chose him. Jesus chose him. Ooh, did Jesus make a mistake? No. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he chose Judas Iscariot. He chose Judas Iscariot even though he knew what kind of man he was. It was in the plan of God though. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But this warfare, Jesus sitting there having the Passover with his disciples. And all this warfare, the enemy working on Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus and all the strife, the fussing, and the fighting of the disciples about who's going to be the greatest. All this is going on. Can you imagine? And Jesus is fixing to die the next day. And He knows it. And He's full of sorrow. And He's full of grief. And He's got around some people that love Him. And He's got around some people that He loves. But nothing they can say and nothing they can do can lift the burden off of Him. Nothing they could say. No words of encouragement. Nothing they could do will change what Jesus is going to have to face the next day. He knows what He's going to have to go through. He knows He's going to have to die. But He knows God's going to raise Him from the dead. He knows as a man, He's going back to God. He knows that. The Bible tells us He gets along with His disciples. All this fuss is going on. But he still loves them. And he loves them in the cosmos. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're not in the control of the spirit of the age anymore. But yet they're not acting like they should. And Jesus knows he's got a devil. Devil number one. Setting at the table with him. Devil number one is sitting at the table with him, eating the bread. Devil number one, Judas Iscariot, is sitting at the table. And Jesus knows it. The disciples don't. That's a miracle. That they wouldn't know it. It was hid from their eyes that they wouldn't know it. Jesus knew. You've got to get the background here of the supper. Now, they're all laying there in a position. The oriental custom of the day during Passover, I don't say it's like that every day, but during Passover, the way they ate, the position they took. They're reclining. They're not sitting up in chairs at a table like you and I eat. They're reclining. They're laying over on their left hand side and they got their hands, they're propping their heads up with their left hand. As they're laying like this, they got their feet stretched out backwards or back away from their body. And they got their hands on their head, holding their head up. And with their right hand, they reach out to the bowls of food that's in the center of the couch. And therefore, they can eat the food with their right hand as they support themselves on their left side with their left hand against their head. And they can eat like that. So they're in a reclined position when they're eating this supper. They're not sitting up on a chair at a table. So the Bible tells us all this is going on. 
the scripture says, the supper being ended, the devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Again, this is his humanity in relationship with his deity. It's not two separate persons going on here. Amen. He's going back to God as a man. He's not going back to God as God. He's going back to God as a man. Relationship. These passages are beautiful. Show the relationship of Jesus' humanity with His deity. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was come from God as a man and went to God as a man. But He's still God. He rises from supper. Seven things He does in the next two passages. Seven things. The first thing, He rises, rises from supper. Look at it, please. He riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them. Seven things he does, which lets you know that what God begins to do, he always completes. And what he's about to do here, he is going to, what he begins, he's going to finish it. He's going to complete it. So he does, he takes these seven steps here. But these seven steps are symbolic. Because remember, the background is Passover. And Passover, remember the Bible teaches you the principle of the natural first and then the spiritual? Say the natural first. That's Passover in the Old Testament. He is going to fulfill Passover here spiritually. So every step he takes here is not to show the church how to get a basin of water out and how to wash each other's feet. What he's going to do here is going to teach you a spiritual fulfillment of a natural occurrence which was Passover in the Old Testament. So the Passover meal that he's eating here, the Passover lamb, speaks of his death. That Old Testament natural Passover lamb is pointing naturally to the spiritual truth that Jesus is the Passover lamb that will die. His blood will be shed. Just like that Passover lamb in the Old Testament, the blood of that lamb was shed and the blood was applied three places to side posted over the top. And when the death angel passed over and saw the blood on the two side posted over the top, not on the ground to be walked on, but over the top and over the two sides. So that when you went through the door, you went through the blood. And when you went out the door, you went through the blood. So that the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the door of the house. And they went through the blood of the Passover lamb. And when that death angel went through there in that Old Testament natural picture, 
that death angel saw the blood of a natural lamb that had died and he passed over them and the firstborn did not die. And so this Passover in the Old Testament was natural. It's pointing to a spiritual fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Catch it. So the Passover meal is speaking of His death. And when they eat the lamb, it's speaking of His death. Notice it. This that He does is prophetic. The washing of the disciples' feet is prophetic. It's symbolic of a greater truth. I tell you, it's not to teach you how to wash somebody's feet. It's teaching you spiritual truth. He's given you a prophetic picture of His death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And His forgiveness of your sin. That's why Peter, even though we'll see in a little bit, Jesus is washing his feet. Peter, Jesus says, you're not going to know what I'm doing until. Not now. But after I rise from the dead, and after you get the Holy Ghost, then you're going to understand what I'm doing. Peter, you're not going to know right now. Even though you can see Jesus washing the feet, Peter can't know that Jesus is washing his feet. No, he doesn't understand what it means. He doesn't understand what it means. He will know what it means, but not at the moment Jesus is washing his feet. It's not about just washing feet. It's a prophetic picture of how he's going to save you. Glory to God. So the meal they're eating, the natural lamb was slain, but now we have a spiritual fulfillment going on here. We have the fulfillment of Passover. We have the fulfillment of the Passover lamb sitting among them. The true Passover lamb is sitting at that table. The true lamb of God which is going to take away the sin of the world, is sitting at that table. That natural picture, that type and that shadow of the Old Testament was pointing to the true Lamb of God. And so everything He does is not to teach you some natural thing. It's to teach you a spiritual truth. It's the natural first and then the spiritual. So this is symbolic. This is prophetic of how Jesus will cleanse you. These seven steps that He takes. Glory to God. That's why Peter didn't know what Jesus is doing. Didn't know what He was doing. He wasn't talking about just washing the feet. He knew Jesus was washing his feet. He didn't know what it meant. Why was Jesus washing his feet? 
The background is Passover supper. The background is the devil has put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus Christ. The background is here is given. Jesus knows he's fixing to depart out of the cosmos and go back to God. That's the background. They're all fussing and fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus is fixing to die the next day. So when you eat this lamb, this lamb naturally is speaking of the true lamb of God that will die for your sin. And when you eat him, you fellowship with his death. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, said Jesus, you cannot be saved. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Are we talking about literally and naturally eat his flesh and drink his blood? No, he's talking about spiritual reality. Except you experience the salvation he has provided. Can you swallow that? You can't be saved if he doesn't cleanse you. If he doesn't become the spiritual fulfillment and the spiritual reality of a natural type, you cannot be saved. So everything you did right here in these verses is a prophetic picture of His salvation for you and me. It wasn't just to teach you about being humble. It wasn't just doing it. It wasn't happening so you could just learn how to be a servant and learn how to wash somebody's feet. It was to teach you how to be saved. Give God praise in the house. You say, well, you know, I feel like I need to wash somebody's feet. Well, if it'll help you get closer to God, go for it. But this washing of the feet was not just to teach you about humility. It, it was. But it was teaching you about the ultimate humility. And the ultimate humiliation. The ultimate humiliation of Jesus. What He would go through to save your soul from a devil's hell. It taught you about His humility. It taught you about His humiliation and what He would go through to cleanse you from your sin. And it'll teach you, yeah, it'll teach you how that you're going to go through humiliation to help somebody get saved. You'll be humiliated at times. You'll have to humble yourself and serve. Uh, but that's not all that it is. It's a picture of his humiliation and death. So the Passover that they're eating is a picture of his death. The eating of that lamb is a picture of his death. That lamb had to be slain. Its blood had to be shed before they could eat that flesh. And so when they ate the lamb, Passover lamb, they were eating. Come on, somebody. They were participation, participating in the death of the Lamb. Supper being ended. The Bible says He riseth from supper. 
that he rises from suffering and laid aside his garment. If you study the word laid aside his garment, you will find out it can also mean laid aside his life or laid down his life. So when he said he laid aside his garment, it's a prophetic picture of how he will put off his garment. He will lay down his life for you and for me. Give God praise in the house. When he rose up and laid aside his garment, it's a picture of the death of the Lamb. But when he rose up, it's a picture that when he dies, he's not going to stay dead. He's going to get up. He rose up, laid aside his garment. The laying aside of his garment speaks of his death for you. The lamb eaten speaks of participation with the death of the lamb. But he's not going to stay dead. He rises up. It speaks of his resurrection from the dead. The Bible says, after that, he took a towel, he girded himself. Say, girded himself. He tied it in knots. He tied it in knots. A girding, a, a, a garment that's tied in knots is a garment of a slave. It's also the garment of a prince. Did you catch that? At this point, he's going to show his disciples his humiliation and the way he will humble himself in death for them by laying aside his garments. But he will rise up. He puts a knotted garment on which speaks of a slave and a prince. He is acting as servant and sovereign at the same time. And he's telling these bickering, fussing, fighting disciples, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you have to learn to be a servant. And when you clothe yourself with humility and become a servant, you submit to God, put your feet in His hands, submit to God, submit to His will, walk holy before the Lord. When you do and you serve God's people, say you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. So He said the way to be a prince because as I said, the word guard means a, guard means a knotted garment. It's the garment of a slave and a prince. He's letting you know if you want to be a prince, then learn to be a servant. Look at 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. Now you got, I pray that you're hearing this tonight because your salvation depends on what I'm preaching. I'll prove it to you by the word of God. Your salvation depends upon you hearing this word tonight. 1 John 5, 1 Peter 5, look at, look at Peter. 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. Mm. 
5.5. 1 Peter 5.5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourself. Look at this. Unto the elder. Ye all of you be subject one to another. Who's writing this? Peter. And be girded with humility. Peter said be girded with humility. It's the same word that's used in John 13. The King James Version used to be clothed with humility. But he said be girded with humility. For God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Gird yourself with humility. Where'd you learn that, Peter? Peter, you learned it. Peter saw it when Jesus knotted a garment and took upon Himself the role of a servant and stooped down and washed the disciples' feet. God incarnate. God in flesh. Stooping down to wash the disciples' feet. No man has ever stooped that low before. How high is God? How low did He stoop to save you? And what Peter's telling you is when you be clothed with humility, when you be girded with humility, he said, put on the garments of a slave, a servant. And when you do, you'll walk as a prince. He said, you want to be a ruler? You want to be a prince in God's kingdom? You want to be great in God's kingdom? He said, here's the answer. Serve in humility. Oh, are you hearing me right now? And the background is they've been fussing and fighting about who's going to be the greatest. Peter learned the lesson well. He saw Jesus gird himself with humility. But it's a prophetic picture. It's symbolic of salvation. So, the supper represents the death of the Lamb. The eating of the supper is a participation in the death of the Lamb. The rising up and laying aside the garments is the laying down of His life and rising from the dead. And then the Bible says He girds that towel around Him as a servant. He takes it on the form of humility and humiliation. And ultimately, that's Calvary. And then the Bible tells us He pours water. That's His servant character. And that's what He's doing even to this day. After His death, burial, and resurrection, He has not stopped serving Even though He's God and He's man, Jesus died on the cross, rose again the third day, ascended to sit on the right hand of God. Even though He's on the throne of God right now, He's still serving you and me. You know how He's doing it? By cleansing you. By cleansing you. By forgiving you of your sin. Right now, today, Jesus is still serving you. Boggles my mind to know that he's still serving me. How? In the fact that he's still cleansing me, he's still cleansing you. This is showing you his servant character even now as you sit here. 
And then verse 12, the Bible says, when it goes through washing the disciples' feet, the Scripture says, He takes His garments again. And He puts His garments on again. And this speaks also of His resurrection, His ascension. He's sitting on the throne of God today as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He put on His garments again. So what he's doing, Peter, you don't know now, but when I rise from the dead, when you walk into that sepulcher and you see an empty tomb, you're going to get it then. When you see grave clothes in that sepulcher, you're going to get it then. When you get the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, you'll get it then, Peter. You don't know what I'm doing now, but you will. It's prophetic. It's spiritual. It's symbolic of the salvation that He will provide you through humiliation on the cross. Oh, glory to God. Verse 12, so after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, he took them again. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, know ye what I've done to you. What I have done to you. He will say, Peter, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. He didn't say, Peter, if you don't let me wash you. He said, if I don't wash you, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You have no fellowship with me if I don't. He's not just talking about washing his feet. This is salvic. This is salvation. This is prophetic picture. This is symbolism. Because Jesus will wash Judas Iscariot's feet. But he will say, there's one of you not clean. Watch, what is it? Back up a little bit. So he rises from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. Wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? You're not going to wash my feet, Lord. Well, how would you feel if God in flesh is stooping down to wash your feet, the role of a servant, the role of a slave? And you've been fussing and fighting about how great you are. I mean, put yourself in Peter's shoes. 
Would you want God incarnate washing your feet when you're full of yourself? When all you can think about is how great you are and that you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom and Jesus is going to wash your feet, God come in flesh. Nobody ever stooped that low. Would you want God in flesh to wash your feet when you're full of sin? Peter doesn't want Jesus washing his feet because what Jesus is about to do condemns Peter. You talk about that great, y'all talk about somebody about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And the greatest of the greatest. God in flesh is right there. And he takes upon he takes upon himself the role of a servant and stoops lower than any has ever stooped before. Ultimately, that's Calvary. It's the picture we get. Would you want God incarnate washing your feet? I, if you were full of self, thinking about how great you are, put yourself in Peter's shoes. Jesus answered, now I want you to get this. Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. You don't understand the washing of the feet. When we wash each other's feet, you need to remember that it's a picture of His ultimate humiliation and salvation and cleansing and forgiveness of your sin. Lord, dost thou wash my feet, said Peter? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Wow. I'm, I, we were out of town. The providence of God you know, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I got sick of myself at times. Amen. I, I'm not going to put myself up here and make you think I was super spiritual when I was out of town on vacation. I'm not trying to do that. But I'm telling you, there was at times still the providence of God there. And He led us about 50 miles away from where we were staying. And we saw a duplication of the Shroud of Turin. Turin. It's supposed to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. I caught you a picture of it. I'm not going to get into the details of that right now. But we sat down and we had, listen, we had a one-on-one teacher. My family and this man in charge of the whole thing sat down and taught us for hours about the supposed burial cloth of Jesus Christ. I had an opportunity to ask him a question about the coins on the eyes. And could that disprove that this is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ? He explained that, that to me. Have you ever been asked this question before? He said, yeah. That's come up before. The coins on the eyes is supposed to be a pagan custom. They point the coin, put the coins on the eyes of the person that died. That's a pagan custom. And so that they could pay the, 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 the boatman of the river of Styx in Hades. And I said, is it possible that that... <clears throat> Could be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ and got the coins over the eyes. Can you explain that to me? That custom? Would that be practiced by a Jewish man like that? 
And I said, would that shroud right there be his burial cloth instead of a rounding type burial cloth? He said, I can prove that it is by the scripture. Well, I'm telling you, friend. We got pictures. I don't know if it's the burial cloth of Jesus Christ or not. But I can tell you this one thing. When Peter walked in there on resurrection night and he saw the gray clothes over there, oh God, I love ocean. He knew why Jesus after supper, supper being in it, riseth up, lays aside his garments, poured in water, washed the disciples' feet, wiped their feet, and then verse 12, after he got done, put his garments back on. He knew what it meant. Providence and calling. You don't understand, Peter. You think Jesus you pour water on the feet. You're taking a little serving. There's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Prophetic. Look at the prophets in the Old Testament. Look at the things that Ezekiel did. Ezekiel was this one of the strangest preachers. He did some of the strangest thing laying on his side. A certain amount of time he turned over lay on his side. A certain amount of time, you know. Right. Cooking with Don. Look at Isaiah the prophet running around his three days or so without any clothes on through Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, Ezekiel he acted out his prophecies more than any prophet. What Jesus is doing here is a prophetic picture. He wants you to see it. You don't know it. You don't understand it now. But you will hereafter. Praise God. <laughs> Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. This is a heart test for Peter. This is going to manifest his heart. He said, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, if I wash thee not, if I wash you not, you have no part with me, no participation with me, no fellowship with me if I don't wash you. He, as I said, he couldn't even think about not being in fellowship with the Lord. For him, that was intolerable. So it's commendable. He says, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus said, I don't need to wash your hands, which speaks of what you do. What you do with your hands. He said, I'm concerned about your walk. But before you get your walk right, you got to get your heart right. And when you get your heart right, then your walk will be right. When your heart's right, your walk will be right. And what you do will be right. But if your heart's not right, what you do's not going to be right. He said, look, the response, look at, commendable that Peter said, not only my hands, but my 
Not my, not only my feet, but my hands and my head also. It's commendable. Do you have that kind of passion for Jesus? That the thought of not being in participation with Him, the thought of not being in fellowship with Him is intolerable to you. You can't stand the thought of that. That's Peter. That's why he responded like he did. He's commendable. But Jesus gently, I'll say it gently. I haven't looked at the background of the words here to know the strength of what Jesus said. But here's what he says to Peter. Peter said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus said, If I wash, look at this. I want you to catch this. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. He said, I've got to cleanse you. And in order for me to cleanse you, I have to be humiliated on an old rugged cross. I've got to die. Okay, I'm not going through the steps again. For you to be cleansed. If I don't cleanse you, he said this to all of us. If he does not cleanse you, you have no fellowship with him. And Jesus does never does not cleanse and never will cleanse an unbeliever. He only cleanses the believer, not the unbeliever. So Peter, if I don't cleanse you, you have no fellowship with me. He's talking about washing his feet. He doesn't need a whole bath. He just needs his feet cleansed. Because he's already had a bath. See, this is the background is a Roman Roman society. You go and take a bath, you know. You get through taking a bath. You walk back home. And on the way back home, your feet get dirty. You walk into the house and a slave meets you at the door and pours water on your feet and washes your feet. You don't need a bath. You just got back from the bathhouse. But your feet got dirty on the way home. So he's going to tell Peter, you don't need a whole bath. You just need your feet cleansed, washed. He said, I've already given you a bath. When? John 4, 1. Go there. John 4, 1. Pray. Yeah. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself baptized not but His disciples. It doesn't say, though Jesus Himself baptized not, but His disciples baptized. It says, though Jesus Himself baptized not, but His disciples. Jesus had already given His disciples the bath. They've already been baptized. So they've already got the bath, the washing of the labor, the washing of the bath. So you don't need to go through that again. You don't need to be rebaptized, Peter. You will 
you will after my death and resurrection take my name. But you already, up to this point, have experienced the bath. And it's not necessary for you to have another bath. Once you're baptized in Jesus' name, it's not necessary for you to be rebaptized in Jesus' name. You just need your feet washed because you walk in the world and, and you, 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 you rub shoulders with associations and you, you get your feet dirty, you know. And so you need your feet cleansed. How does that happen? By the washing of the Word. Ephesians 5.26 Are y'all with me so far? Okay, hang with me, hang with me. I'm not going to take off too fast here. Only if you get this. Watch. Jesus, verse 10, saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash, not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. You understand? Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. He said, you don't need a whole bath. You just need your feet washed. So what you have to have, okay, before you enter into the Father's house, is you need two things. You need the bath first. Titus 3, 5, Bloss, get it for me. You need the bath. Read Titus 3 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the, hold on up there. By the washing of regeneration, or literally, by the washing of of the water laver. It's pointing back to the tabernacle. By the washing of regeneration. Or the one translation has it, the washing of the bath. Read it again. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost by the washing of the bath and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's the way He saved you. So when you got water baptized in Jesus' name, that's when you got your bath. And without the bath, you can't go into the Father's house. You've got to have the bath to go into the Father's house. You can't go in there unclean. But if you've got the bath, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, you got the bath. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Here's the bath. Read it, Bloss. Look at that. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going into the Father's house. Read. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, 
Extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Stop. You're not going to the Father's house that way. Living that kind of lifestyle. And such were some of you. But you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. In the name of the Lord. And by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. But you've been washed. You have a bath. You're washed, justified, sanctified in the name of the Lord. And you got baptized in Jesus' name. Such were some of you. Washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. Did you just hear what he just read? He read about homosexuals. He read about funny dudes. He read about lesbians. He read about homosexuals. He read about all kinds of, all manner of sin. And such were some of you. And some people say, well, you know, maybe they're caught up in one of those sins and I can't quit it. They'll say, I can't be delivered from it. Really? And such were some of you. It's not that you can't be delivered from homosexuality or lesbianism or drunkenness or drugs. It's not that you can't be delivered. You don't want to be delivered. If you want to be delivered, you can be delivered by the Word of God. It says, and such were some of you. You got someone say, well, I can. I just can. I tried and I can't. It's not that you can't, it's that you don't want to be. I've got Bible that says that they were because they wanted to be. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. That's the bath. Acts 2, 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive. What? The gift of the Holy Ghost. Baptism in Jesus' name, Acts 2.38, is the bath. But once you've got the bath, once you have been cleansed, you don't need to be rebaptized. Because what Jesus is saying? You just need your feet washed. See, remember John 4.1, I baptized you way back there. You don't need to be Go through that again. But you've been you've been walking through the world since then. Your feet's got all contaminated and polluted and dirty and filthy. You need clean you need your feet cleansed. You need to get your walk right. See, it's not that you need to be saved again. You are saved. You've experienced the bath, you've experienced the Holy Ghost. What you need is to get the contaminants of the world off of you. You don't need to get baptized in Jesus' name again. You are cleansed. 
Uh, Ephesians 5.26, look. Come on, listen. Are y'all with me so far? Ephesians 5.26. Are y'all still with me? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So now we have a washing of the water that's by the word. Two things to get in Father's house. You gotta have a bath, baptized into his name, and filled with the Holy Ghost, and then you have to have your feet washed. And the way you get your feet washed to get that old worldly influence off of you. Hey, I thank God I'm in church tonight. Because I'm getting cleansed right now. My feet's getting cleansed right now. It's not just about water in a tub. It's about being cleansed. By the washing of the water. By the word. So when you come to the house of God, you've been in the world, your feet got dirty. You come to the house of God. You ever notice how you feel when you get through, you leave the house of God? You feel so clean. You feel so good. We didn't have to rebaptize you or give you another bath. Although I've seen some of you plunge more than once. I remember one night I think the whole church went and got plunged again. And I didn't even do it. You did it to yourself. But anyway. We don't have to rebaptize you again. You come in here, you hear the word of God preached, you get your mind cleansed, you get your heart cleansed, you get your feet. You put your feet in the hands of Jesus Christ. He takes over your walk. You yield to Him. You yield your walk to Him. You live a clean life. And you serve the Lord. It's a holy walk. So you came to church today cleansed by the washing of the Word. Got my feet washed tonight. I got my feet washed tonight. I submitted to His will. I put my walk in His hands. I'm living a holy life now. This has to do with a holy walk. A holy walk. Sanctification. It has to do with sanctification. Okay? All right, so you hear the word preached. You wash it. You're cleansed by the what? By the washing what? That he might sanctify. Sanctify. Set you apart. It's sanctification. You're already righteous. You're already in right standing with him. He looks at you as his children. And He loves you. You're saved. You're a believer. But you stumbled in your walk. Or the influence of the world got you dirty. And you come to the house of God and the Word of God. Affects your sanctification. Affects your holy walk. Put your feet in His hands. And submit to His will. And live a clean life and serve Him. And the Bible says, 
1 John 1, 7 through 9. Bloss, get it please fast. What does it say? 1 John 1 and 9. 1, 7 through 9. He's writing to the believer. John again. Writing to the believers. Read. Two seven. First John two seven through nine. First John, yeah. Hold on a minute. Let me find first John. Hold on, I'm looking. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to cleanse you. First John two nine. Where are you reading from now? Is it First John one nine? Okay, I read. First John one nine. Read seven. Let's start with seven. Okay. If we walk in the light, as He. In the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, stop, cleanses us, cleanses us from all sin. It's about your walk. Read. If we say we have no sin, that means that we walk around and say we don't have a sin nature anymore. If we say we have no sin, read. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Read. But if we confess our sins, we stand. There we go. His blood is just going to keep on cleansing you. When you confess your sin, His blood is going to keep on cleansing you. It has to do with your walk if we sin. So you don't need to get rebaptized again. You don't need a bath. You're already right with the Lord. It's about your walk with God. So you come and hear the Word preached. You're cleansed by the washing of the Word. Sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1 John 1, 7 through 9. Confessing your sin. It's about getting... So to enter the Father's house, two things. You have to have the bath and you have to have your feet washed. Which means you need to sit under the Word of God as, and the Word, will, as it's preached, it will cleanse you. It will bring you to a place of conviction. It will bring you to a place where you repent of sin and confess your sin. And you won't walk around and say, I don't need anything. I'm better than that church. I'm better than that pastor. I don't need to go to church. You're going to die and go to hell. You're going to spit hell wide open. You need two things. You need the washing of regeneration and the newt of the Holy Ghost. You need the bath and you need your feet washed by the preaching of the Word. And by the reading of your Bible. And by the confessing of your sin. To get those dirty feet clean. 
and men you can enter into the Father's house. So Jesus wasn't just teaching them about putting water in a pail and washing the feet. He's talking about salvation. Everything he did was symbolic and prophetic about the salvation he would provide. Give God praise. That's why he looks at Peter and he says, if I don't wash you, if I wash you not, he didn't say, if, he didn't say, if you don't let me wash you. He said, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. You're going to die and go to hell. And it wasn't just about him washing feet. It's about the salvation he would provide in his humiliation on the cross. And teaching them, you've already got the bath, but your feet get dirty. And you need to learn to put your hands on my feet. And my feet, your feet in my hands. <laughs> and he got up, he walked around. The disciples still leaning on the left side, holding their heads up, you know, eating. He walked around. I believe he came to Peter first of all. Some people say he went to John. I believe he went to Peter first. Because if he had gone, not John. Some say Judas went to Judas first. But if he had gone to Judas or the other disciples first, Peter probably would have just followed suit. I believe Judas went to Peter first. Peter's, you know, he's been talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He walked up behind him. Started, he knelt down, stooped down, and started washing him. I'm going to wash Peter's feet. He said, you don't know what I'm doing, but you will hereafter. You don't need a bath. You just need your feet washed. I'm glad to tell you tonight, when you came to the house of God, to hear the word of God, the word just pleased you. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm really glad. That we don't have to rebaptize you in Jesus' name every time you come to church. I'd get really tired. But I'm glad once you experience the bath that you are regenerated and you're his child. From that day forward, you experience a continual washing of your feet. Holy walk. By hearing the word preached, by reading the Bible yourself. Do you read your Bible? You say, but pastor, I've got to wash your feet. In order to be saved, you can wash my feet. I don't have a problem with that. Say, I don't wash that brother or sister's feet, or I can't be saved. I don't have a problem with that. But do you read your Bible? Because that Bible will cleanse you. This Bible, this word will keep me from sin, or sin will keep me from this Bible. Put your feet in His hand. Put your feet in His hand. Submit to His will. Live a clean life. And serve the Lord and people. That's the answer to getting joy in your life. Do you understand? Okay, I'm closing. John 13. Glory to God. 
Jesus said unto him, He that is washed, he not saved to wash his feet. The only thing you need is feet washed. You don't need to be bathed again. But he's clean every way. You're clean. And you are clean. And ye are clean. He's speaking of the disciples. Ye are clean. But not all of you. He wasn't talking about people. He's talking about the sinner sitting at the table. Did you hear? Judas Iscariot was the one sitting at the table that was not clean because he refused the cleansing power of Jesus. Redemptive sacrifice. He refused the cleansing. I tell you tonight, we can wash everybody's feet from sunup to sundown. And unless, except you experience the cleansing power of Jesus, salvation, personally. Foot washing, just washing your feet is not going to produce fellowship with the Christ of God. Judas Iscariot, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. That means he washed Judas Iscariot's feet. But he still says, there's one. He said, you're clean, but not all of you. He said, there's one around, there's one among you even though his feet's been washed, he's still not clean. He refuses. He rejects the cleansing. But yet he claims to be a disciple. He's a betrayer. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying to you that he's this message tonight I'm preaching to you is not to teach you to get the pails and the water out. You can do that all night long and still know not what he did. It's symbolic. It's prophetic. Well, Pastor, you're spiritualizing it. No, I'm giving you spiritual application. Do you know tonight, as I let you go in the next few minutes, that nowhere in the book of Acts do you have one time the church doing a foot washing ceremony. They did not practice it in the book of Acts. You say, well, okay, pastor. But I still believe you got to do a little foot washing. Well, praise the Lord, we're going to do it. But don't forget what I preached to you tonight. That is a prophetic message of his salvation for you. Okay? Not in the book of Acts. Okay? You show me one time in the book of Acts where they wash each other's feet in the church. Okay, good. Praise the Lord. I knew I'd have the whole church stand up. First Timothy 5.10. You say, okay, I got it here, right here, Pastor. First Timothy 5.10. 
And by the way, while you're turning to the first Timothy 5, 10, I will tell you this, that John chapter 12 opens with Jesus being anointed. John 13 opens up with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Nobody ever washed his feet. They anointed his feet. But you say, well, what about Mary? She wiped his feet. That, not like this. She, the tears fell on, her, on his feet, and she dried his feet with her hair. Nobody ever washed Jesus' feet. They anointed his feet. First Timothy 5.10 Requirements for a widow to be recognized as a widow in the church. Okay. Well reported of for... Okay. They must be well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work, that's the qualification, one of them, to be recognized as a widow in the church. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that. You say, well, right there, it says, well, the widows are washing the same feet, so her washing must be in the Bible. All I'm saying to you tonight is this, there's not a place in the book of Acts where they did it, and we are the people of the book of Acts. Hello. So what I'm trying to say to you is you can do this. You can do this. Foot washing and elevate it to the level of baptism. Elevate it to the level of the Lord's Supper if you want to. But I don't see the church elevating it to that level. Because it wasn't the natural that was the point. It was the spiritual teaching that was the point. I'll also tell you this, you can be baptized in Jesus' name and still come up a, a sinner. If you don't accept the cleansing by faith, say amen. Now, okay, having said all of that, I'm trying to get you to focus on the prophetic teaching of it, the symbolism of it, the spiritual truth of it. First the natural, then the spiritual. Are we going to do foot washing? Yes, of course, as God leads. But when we do foot washing now, we're going to know what he did and why he did it. It is teaching you about his salvation, his cleansing by his blood. It's teaching you his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And the way he keeps serving you even today, he keeps cleansing you every day. Because if he didn't, if he, this is, ah, hello. If you didn't get cleaned up today by the blood of Jesus, every one of you going to die and go to hell. But I was baptized in Jesus' name. That's right. But your feet's got dirty since then. And if you don't get them clean tonight, if you don't get them clean tonight, if you don't put your feet in the hand of Jesus and submit to his will and live a clean life and serve the Lord, you can't go into the Father's house. If I, Jesus said to Peter, cleanse you not, I cleanse you not, you have no part. Does that make any sense? So we're going to, we'll, 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 we'll wash feet when the Lord leads. But now we know what it means. Praise the Lord. And I'm not just preaching a sermon to you. This is vital to your salvation. It's vital to my salvation. <clears throat>
Okay. Well, I need to get right with the Lord, so I'm going to go to church tonight and hope they have foot washing. Okay, good. I'm not putting that down. Please forgive me. I'm just telling you that if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not confessing your sin, if you're not putting your feet in His hands and submitting to His will, I can wash your feet, you can wash each other's feet, and still not be clean. Woo! Woo! Hallelujah. Are y'all having fun tonight? Man, you don't know how much fun I am. Hey, I'm almost done. Let's go there. Doug, please, it's close. Helping you, Annie? Well, I know you knew all this already. I know you know it all. You know everything. Hallelujah. That's okay. God wants you to know everything. That way when I get up and preach it, then hallelujah. It's not new to you. So after he had washed their feet, had taken his garments and was set down again, he said, I know you what I have done to you. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. I am Master, and I am Lord. And it's God in flesh. And you say, well, if I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And somebody said, well, there it is right there. It tells you that we, that we need to wash each other's feet. I'm not saying we're not going to. I'm just telling you there's more to it than just washing the feet. Okay? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I don't mean to throw a wet blanket on you. I saw you. Even David, whatever his name is, never ready. I, see, when I'm preaching, he never does this. But when I'm out of town, he was... Brother Bold sent me the video. I got the video. I started to erase it. I said, I'm never going to erase it. Then I come to church. And I know I'm just throwing a wet blanket on you. I just go back to Rio Doso. Hallelujah. And y'all can have church. David, what's his name? I'm trying to measure up. And as far as I know, when he sent me the, the picture, the preaching hadn't even gone forth yet. He's already, already dancing. The whole church is dancing. He'll come back and run the whole thing. He'll sit there and look at me again. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank God, though, at least I had a banner in my office. Says, Welcome home. Praise God, that made me feel good, man. Jesus. If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. We will. But remember what it really means. For I have given you an example that you would do as I have done to you. Clothe yourself with humility. Gird yourself with humility. Gird yourself in a naughty garment which is the garment of a slave. Put your feet in the hands of God and submit to His will. 
and live a clean life and serve the Lord and serve people. And when you do that, you're putting on princely garments. The only difference between the naughty garment of a slave and the naughty garment of the prince is that you carry it. That's why Peter said, be clothed with humility in 1 Peter 5, 5. He learned it in Jesus. He saw Jesus. Give the Lord praise in the house. <clears throat> praise God! I'm going to verse 10. Jesus said, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said, Ye are not all clean. See, there are some, even though the, the feet are washed, they're not clean. Even though they've been baptized, they're not clean. Because they've rejected. The cleansing it provides. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I, do you get a hold of do you really get a hold of this? Do you see the Lord kneeling down? God incarnate, the one who created the heavens and the earth. Stooping that low? What is the distance between deity and dust, said Jeff Arnold, years ago in the message? Not one preached on this. But years ago he preached a message. I don't even know the title of it. He says, how far is the distance between deity and dust? That's how far he came and how low he stooped to save your soul. Can you measure how far he came? Deity to dust. Glory to humiliation. To save you and me. No wonder he said, if I don't clean you, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part with me. That's something. How many of you want to go into the Father's house? How many of you experience the bath? How many will continue to experience the cleansing of the feet? By the word and by confession of sin? then you will be allowed to enter into the Father's house. The moment you say, I don't need God's Word preached to me anymore. The moment you say, I don't need to go to church anymore and hear His Word or read His Word. The moment you say, I don't need to confess any sin. That's when you refuse the fellowship that He's offering you. Give God some praise. Okay? Hallelujah. Verily, verily, I say unto you, here is it, double renunciation of deity. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Right? Correct? The servant is not greater than his Lord. How many of you are greater than Jesus Christ? None of us in here are greater than Jesus Christ. You are. The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If God sent you, how could you be greater than him? If somebody sends you, how can you be greater than the one that sent you? If you know these things, he said, here's the key to kingdom, happiness, and joy. How many of you want to have joy in your life? 
How many want to be victorious and happy? Did you see it? He gave you the key to kingdom joy. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. You believe. Put your feet in His hands. Walk holy. Walk holy with the Lord. Live a sanctified life. Live a clean life. Read the Bible. Hear the Word of God preached. Confess your sin. Experience humiliation to bring somebody into God's kingdom. Yes, Pour them to Jesus' death and His agony and suffering. And not just His death, His resurrection. And His continual servant character which is to cleanse you on a daily basis. And cleanse me on a daily basis so I can go to heaven. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. How many want to be happy? I speak not of you all. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up the seal against me. He said, I know. He chose Judas Iscariot. He chose all of them. He handpicked them. Okay, let me close. What he's telling his disciples is after he dies, do not get discouraged and quit when you see one of your own betray you. Because when you see one of your own betray me, remember I told you before it happened, it's going to happen. It didn't happen by accident. He said it's prophesied. It will be a fulfillment of the Word of God. Okay? Jesus, Judas Iscariot, when Jesus chose him, he knew what kind of man Judas was, but he still chose him. But Judas refused to choose the Lord. See, the Lord can choose you. And it's no accident. But will you choose him? And even though Judas was chosen by God and it was a miracle that that was concealed, that he was going to be the one to betray him, concealed from the other disciples, a miracle, Jesus knew. But he still chose him. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Somebody will betray him for 30 pieces of silver, according to Zechariah. Somebody will. But Judas. It doesn't have to be you. Did you catch that? You have been chosen, Judas, if you will choose to put your feet in the hands of the Lord and submit to His will and live a holy life and a clean life and serve the Lord. You too will be saved by the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. But He rejected it. And so even though he was chosen, he refused to choose the Lord. Therefore, he was lost. Are you here? The devil, hear, hear me. I'm going to let you go. I know you need to go. No, but hear me, please. There's something the devil can't take away from you. 
And that's your choice. You can choose to repent. You can choose what he's chosen. And the devil can't take that away from you. Somebody said, well, I wonder if I'm Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. Judas didn't have to be. It's no accident that Jesus chose him. But he became the betrayer because he chose to betray the Lord. The devil can't make you do anything. He can't make you backslide. He can't make you go to hell. He can't, come on. He can't take your choice away. Tonight, if you want to go to heaven, say, I want to go to heaven. I'm chosen. I'm choosing the one that's chosen me. Choose that way. Choose that walk. The devil can't take that away from you. Judas Iscariot willfully surrendered to the voice of the devil to betray Jesus. He didn't have to. Nor do you. He said, I'm just going to have to backslide. No, what are you talking about? The devil's lying to you. You don't have to backslide. I'm just, I don't, you say, the devil's telling you, you're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to make it. Then you start saying to yourself, I'm not going to go to heaven. I'm not going to make it. As long as you have a choice, you can choose to be chosen. And the devil can't take that away from you. And if you want to go to heaven, you'll be in church. And the devil can't stop you from being in church. And he can't stop you from praying. And he can't stop you from fasting. And he can't stop you from reading your Bible. He cannot take away your right to choice. Your right to choose. Your right to choose. So you, you have to fall into that lie of the devil. Hey, listen, there's times for me, I, I, in my own mind, you know, my mind starts telling me, you made it this far, but you're not going to make it through you. I'm talking about myself. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm talking about me. As long as I choose to walk this walk every day, as long as I choose to live for the Lord, nobody can keep me from living for the Lord. Say, but I, I can't because. No, you don't want to. You don't want to live for the Lord. If you did, there's nobody that could stop you. There's no devil in hell that can stop you. If you want to live for God, you need to stop making excuses and start choosing the one that's chosen you because if you don't, you're going to be lost because you chose to be lost. If I'm lost, you go to heavens because I chose to be lost. Now listen to the lies of the devil. How many of you want to go to heaven? You think the devil can stop you from going to heaven? I'm just predestined to be like Judas Iscariot. No, you're not. He wasn't individually predestined to be the betrayer. He chose to be the betrayer. He was chosen by Jesus Christ to be a disciple. He was chosen to be an apostle, not a betrayer. But he chose to be a betrayer. 
What do you choose tonight? Hallelujah. I chose to come back to Odessa, Texas. That's You chose to be here tonight. You could have been a million different places. Amen? But you chose to be here tonight. Why? You want to go to heaven? But I can't live this life. That's what, in your mind, I can't live this life. First John, uh, first, first Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, such for some of you. They, they wanted to. They chose to. Stop making excuses. It's not about, come on somebody, it's about your choices. It's about my choices. Nobody's making you do anything. You're choosing. Does it make sense? You see that old harlot riding the back on the back of that scarlet colored beast? How many of y'all be, believe prophetically that there's going to be a harlot riding on a scarlet colored beast? How many of y'all believe that that's in the Bible? Well, Revelation 17. I saw a woman riding upon the back of a scarlet colored beast. How many of y'all believe it's in the Bible now? Lift your hand. It's in the Bible. Read it. Revelation 17. There's going to be a woman riding on the back of a scarlet colored beast. The beast represents world government. I believe the woman represents a world religious system. Prophetically, the Bible says it's going to be. But it doesn't mean you have to be a part of her. Come out from among her and be ye separate, saith the Lord. He came into this cosmos. I'm coming for. I'm coming full circle. I told you he came into this world of mankind that was alienated from God. He came into that cosmos to bring you out of that world system. That's what he wants and that's what he's choosing today. And if you're a part of that harlot system, it's because you chose to be a part of that. I'm just telling you that because it's prophesied doesn't mean you have to be a part of it. And just because it was prophesied Jesus would be betrayed, it didn't have to be Judas Iscariot that did it. And it doesn't have to be you that did it. If you just get your mind and your heart right with God, this is a heart test right now. I'm preaching to you a heart test right now. It's a heart test for me right now. It's a heart test for every one of you right now. You haven't made it to heaven yet. You don't have a glorified body yet. Your mind is not always exactly the way it's supposed to. You're not always talking the way you're supposed to talk to. Keeping your eyes the way they're supposed to be. Come on, give me a break. You need to get your feet cleansed. I need to get mine cleansed up. That's why we need the Word of God, the church, the Word preached to us. We need to read the Bible. We need to confess our sin.